Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is August 14th, 2019, and my guest is political scientist, author, and columnist George Will. This is his third appearance on Econ Talk, the last being in May 2017, discussing liberty with David Bowes and P.J. O'Rourke. His latest book is The Conservative Sensibility, which is our topic for today. George, welcome back to Econ Talk. Glad to be with you. Uh, your book is a rather extraordinary work of scholarship, entertainment. It's a survey of American history, economic and cultural history, and of American political thought. And in the, early on in the book, you set up a conflict or contrast between what you call the Madisonian and Wilsonian uh, traditions, and you cast them as the debate of which we're still having in America. Why is that the right way to think about it, and what do you mean by that? Well, first, it was kind of fun because uh, there were two Princetonians involved. James, oh, yeah. James Madison of the great class of uh, 1871, I believe, 1771, and Woodrow Wilson of the class of uh, 1879. So it's tidy. But beyond that, it's accurate, which is to say that Madison, who I think of as the best political philosopher practitioner since Aristotle, uh, said, first of all, there are such things as natural rights. Hence, there is such a thing as uh, human nature that is fixed and settled and not plastic to the touch of culture or government, uh, that we are more than culturally acquiring creatures that take on the coloration of whatever social situation we're in. And third, from this flows the most important principle, which is the separation of powers, to make government strong enough to protect our natural rights and not so strong that it threatens them. Woodrow Wilson, uh, as the first self-consciously and theoretically progressive president, I'm not I'm intentionally leaving out Teddy Roosevelt from both of those, uh, rejected these premises that uh, there was a, there's not a fixed human nature, which gives government an enormous uh, new project, which is to make people better as creatures by making the social promptings around them better. Uh, therefore, natural rights are a fiction and not a useful one. Anthropologically naive, they really thought that Locke and Hobbes and the rest really thought there was a state of nature rather than that being a heuristic device to help us think about these things. And finally, he comes, as you would expect from someone who starts wrong, to wind up really wrong by saying that the separation of powers is an anachronism that was suitable once when America was 4 million people, 80% of whom living within Atlantic tidewater on the fringe of an unexplored continent. But, said Wilson, now that we are a great nation united by steel rails and copper wires, we need a nimble, one of his favorite adjectives to describe government, we need a nimble government that can act with dispatch, uh, which requires marginalizing Congress and celebrating a kind of watery Caesarism in the modern presidency. And I think 
you would agree, in fact, I'm sure you say so somewhere in the book, that we are living in Wilson's world, not the world where uh, human nature is plastic, but the world where government has expanded way beyond what a Madison would have wanted. Yes, uh, uh, the progressives have uh, been winning for a century until along came the conservative sensibility to change the tide of history and all that. Uh, No, it's been a a remarkable success, partly because the progressives knew what they were doing. They had ideas, and they uh, knew how to implement them. And they had developed an intellectual infrastructure uh, in academia, academia and elsewhere. For a very long time, if you wanted an advanced degree in the United States in, say, the second half of the 19th century, you went to Germany. Uh, Wilson didn't, but a number of his teachers at Johns Hopkins had done so. And there they acquired two things, a kind of Hegelian mysticism about history, that history was a proper noun, history with a capital H, history with its own autonomous unfolding logic. And they came back with a, a somewhat entailed admiration for Bismarck's bureaucracy. Uh, as the administrator of the unfolding wisdom of history. And uh, Americans imbibed this, not least Thomas Woodrow Wilson, Tommy as he was known at Princeton, as a graduate student at Johns Hopkins. So you talk about the conservative sensibility that came along as a counterweight to that Wilsonian tradition, uh, thinking, I assume, of Margaret Thatcher and the UK, Ronald Reagan here in the United States, you, re- you refer to Barry Goldwater as an important intellectual a failure electorally, but then setting the stage for Reagan. It would be a, a stretch to refer to Barry as an intellectual precursor of much. I mean, Barry was an amiable, as someone described it, a cheerful malcontent. But what he wanted to do was to uh, revive the vocabulary of wide-open spaces, southwestern individualism, and the founders, which, which he did. He famously did not write, but presumably read, The Conscience of a Conservative. That's uh, his book. That's his, yes, I mean, it's one, of the, it's one of the most important, probably the most important campaign book ever published. Sold millions, and other millions were given away. So I, I, I've interrupted you to... Not to disparage Barry, but to defend him against the slur that he was an intellectual. Well, I mentioned it as I, I think I've probably mentioned it on this program before, but uh, I went back at some point and 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 read his, uh, his 1964 uh, acceptance speech to the Republican convention, and it's shockingly um, erudite for compared to today's, which are mainly just a set of noises punctuated by partly cheers. because he had the good sense to have among his speechwriters Harry Jaffa. Hmm of uh, Claremont University. And Harry, of course, is the author of the great book on Lincoln, Crisis of the House Divided. But what I was going to say about that conservative uh, interruption of the progressive movement, and and I want to put this in a broader context, which is that a lot of people um, will decry on the left, will decry the Reagan years, the... um, and also what's called lately uh, as an insult, neoliberalism, uh, or sometimes called free market dogma. Uh, they'll blame uh, certain things on uh, Milton Friedman, F.A. Hayek. And I look back at the last half of the 20th century, and I see a, a speed bump 
that the Reagan revolution put up uh, or that Milton Friedman put up a really tiny, uh, you know, when I hear these complaints, I I always think, boy, I would have liked to live in the world they think we live in, which is where where government got small, where markets were relied on with faith. That's not the world we live in. It seems to me that 1919, if we think of that as the, the Versailles disaster is the beginning of the progressive movement. You can go back a couple years before, as you suggest, but Wilsonian, the Wilsonian vision, it's, um, it's a pretty steady increase. Well, there's ups and downs, but it's, there's a large secular trend toward bigger government, more intrusive government, a few step backs of deregulation in the late 70s, early 80s with Carter and then Reagan. But overall, Government just gets bigger and bigger and more intrusive. And so I think Wilson won. And I also, th- which bothers me like it bothers you, and yet I have to concede that life in the United States overall is pretty good. And so that's a challenge to your view and mine. It is. Uh, Ronald Wilson Reagan is his middle name, <laughs> which I regret. Uh, Ronald, Ronald Reagan complaint was not so much with the New Deal as with the Great Society. I think Reagan looked at the great achievement of the New Deal, which was Social Security, and said, okay, government knows how to do this. You identify an easily identifiable cohort, the elderly, and you write them checks and you stick them in the mail. Uh, What government does not know how to do is deliver head starts and model cities and things like that that something fundamentally changed in 1965 when, after the Goldwater, anti-Goldwater landslide, produced the first Democratic liberal legislating majority in Congress since Roosevelt lost it after trying to pack the Supreme Court in the 1938 elections. Government lost all sense of limits and bearings uh, in terms of its proper scope and actual competence. And what fell was what James Q. Wilson Great, greatest social scientist of the second half of the 20th century, called the legitimacy barrier. Before then, when Congress wanted to do something, they tried to locate it in an enumerated power of the Constitution. Uh, when Eisenhower built the interstate highway system, it was the National Defense Highway Act. I went through Princeton's graduate school with assistance from the National Defense Education Act. So they made us at least a perfunctory, semi-cynical attempt. Uh, Jim Wilson said it, the legitimacy barrier fell finally with the, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which was the quintessentially state and local responsibility. And Congress took it on without even pretending. I mean, they could have said this is the national defense education, <laughs> elementary and secondary education, but they didn't. Uh, from then on, it was uh, there were no drop the mask. Yes, there were no there were there was no restraint on, on the government. And what happened in the 1960s was uh, social scientists became intoxicated with the idea of the direct transmission of social science into policy, ignoring the wisdom of the man who became my best friend, Pat Moynihan. He said, social science cannot tell us what to do. It can tell us the results of what we're doing. And what we were doing was disappointing. Hence, along came the wonderful journal, The Public Interest, with a very small readership, 
but uh, very distinguished authors. Wilson, Daniel Bell, Pat Moynihan, Nathan Glazer, all the rest. Uh, and, and we began to have a serious argument about, as I say, the actual competence of government. So here's the irony for me. So, so we, I think we, the, whether we call us classical liberals or conservatives or libertarians, people who want smaller government than the one we have, we lost, we've lost most of that debate. At the same time, the standard of living in the United States, I think, has risen steadily. Some people think that's not particularly uh, true. They can bring forth numbers to show otherwise, but I think those numbers are deceptive and wrong. I think the standard of living of the average American is dramatically higher than it was 40 years ago, obviously dramatically higher than it was 100 years ago, probably by a factor of anywhere from 10 to 30 times. Um, the number of people who are in safe jobs has gone, as you point out in your book. Uh, so many improvements in the quality of life. And how do we square that with the size of government? How do we square that with the uh, intrusiveness of government, the increase in red tape, the decrease in, I would say, in property rights, in effective property rights? Um, and, and maybe you and I should just change our mind. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. It was a, it was a, it was a straight line. I understand. Uh, first, the, the happy lesson of this is it's really hard to prevent the American people from creating wealth. We're entrepreneurial, we're individualists, we're restless, we're mobile, at least we used to be. Yeah. One of the changes now, and this goes to the heart of your question, is, is uh, so far so good? Well, let's wait and see. When the Dust Bowl and the Depression, this one-two punch hit Oklahoma in John Steinbeck's Great Depression novel, The Grapes of Wrath, the Jode family got up and moved. They went to California in search of work and found it. Uh, today, people are much less mobile, much less apt to move because they are entangled in a web of local government service provisions. And this immobilizes them. These provisions aren't sufficiently portable. But there's, there's more to it than this. Um, we have seen uh, American growth slow to the point at which 3% growth seems to be steady. 3% growth seems to be a utopian aspiration. And we have uh, people like uh, Professor Gordon, uh, the rise and fall of American growth, his great tome, he's a Northwestern economist, saying, well, we had this unusual and unrepeatable century, 1870 to 1970. Electricity, urban sanitation, all that stuff uh, that simply can't be repeated. Now, I tend to think that's a mistake. I remember talking about this with the head of the St. Louis Fed. And he said, yeah, it's like someone saying in, in 1100 A.D., well, we've got with the wheel and fire. We're done. <laughs> yeah, we're done now. So I think these people are always wrong. But in, in fact, we, we did have uh, tremendous economic momentum because of certain wonderful inventions, the internal combustion engine, the incandescent light bulb, on and on and on, antibiotics. Assembly line. Assembly line, all the rest. But uh, it seems to me reasonable to say that one reason for the sluggish economic dynamism has been the suffocating effect of state intervention. 
because states' governments intervene precisely because the political class finds the economically efficient allocation of resources morally offensive. So I want to take a different approach, get your reaction. I, my view is the current economic system with all of its – it's quite a bit of economic freedom, quite a bit of opportunity for innovation, entrepreneurship, and yet also at the same time a sort of um, – Gulliverian uh, set of of cords holding things back. Um, recently, looked at what it takes to put up a building in San Francisco. It's um, it's frightening. It's it's extraordinary. It's also, of course, subject to the rule of of men, not the rule of law. We built the Empire State Building from hole in the ground to topping off in four hundred and ten days during the Depression. We built the Pentagon, world's largest office building, in sixteen months during a war. That's the way it used to be when we could do things. So we've got some freedom but lots of, of additional restraints. And yet I would argue that for uh, well-educated children growing up in two-parent homes, uh, life's really good. Um, it is good, and and the oper- more than good, of course, not just materially lovely, but an opportunity for people to, what I would say, use the word as you do in your book, flourish, use their skills, uh, dream, uh, have a sense of of self-respect and dignity. But there's a large group of people. It's not fifty percent. It's something like maybe fifteen maybe it's 20, uh, of the population that is being left behind, that gets a horrible education, grows up in a, a very unproductive, unencouraging culture. Um, it's a used to be in the inner cities. Now it's also in many rural areas. You talk about the entanglements of, of uh, state benefits. We've also, of course, made it expensive to land somewhere because we've made it extremely hard to build those buildings in America's cities where opportunity is still quite, quite successful. Um, so it seems to me that, the, ironically, the Wilsonian project has been great for the elite and, the, and I would call the bulk of the people and really punishing and destructive of the uh, people who struggle. But progressivism was exactly a doctrine of the elites by the elites and for the elites. They said what we, I mean, their objection to market society was that markets function so annoyingly well without the supervision of intellectuals. And that therefore, progressives were needed to run the administrative state. They didn't use that term, but they said about building it without denoting it. And therefore, uh, uh, it's not an irony, it's natural that progressivism has been good for the cognitive elites. And we have an increasingly cognitively stratified country. There's no question about that. The market is saying at the top of its lungs, stay in school. Because I won't say education, I'll say credentials, because we have an enormous number of expensively schooled imbeciles uh, who are just awfully badly educated at great expense. Uh, Still, uh, those who acquire the cognitive skills flourish in America today, those who don't, don't. My grandfather was a Lutheran minister in Denora, Pennsylvania. I am really familiar with the Monongahela Valley and what happened to the steel industry and what happened to the towns like Denora, Pennsylvania. Uh, And it's devastating. 
but the steel jobs aren't coming back, period. Uh, I remember when John McCain, to his great credit as candidate in 2008 for the presidency, went to Michigan and said the jobs, the automobile jobs are not coming back. Uh, Some have gone to Mexico, some have gone to South Korea, some have gone to South Carolina, but it's different. Robots. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, uh, agreed. Um, And yet today's people who would identify themselves as progressives purport to be concerned about uh, the people at the bottom. So I, I think one of the challenges of our side, and I, I say this periodically to my libertarian friends, is, uh, you know, what's the market going to do for those folks? Um, the, the other side, the progressive side, wants to give them a check. I get that. It's not, to me, I think that's the road to a very unflourishing world and a dangerous world. Well, they want to give them more than a check. They want to give them, and here there's a complete convergence between the Trumpian right and the progressive left. The progressive left wants to give them a check, but it also has no principled objection, no articulated objection to protectionism. True. And what what the Trumpian right and the progressives want is to pull up the drawbridge, raise the walls, uh, and somehow coerce uh, the uh, uh, manufacturing jobs to come back to the United States. We have people in the White House who talk about repatriating our supply chains. Now, these these people have no clue what the supply chain of a Boeing Dreamliner looks like, or even a much simpler gadget like an iPhone looks like. Uh, repatriating the supply chains, trying to repatriate Boeing supply chains, which simply make Airbus the indisputable winner in the commercial aviation competition. Well, they can fix that too. I mean, there's no... Um there's no end to what you have to adjust once you start fiddling. And I think that's, you know, a challenge that um, I guess maybe that's a feature, not a bug for some folks. But um, I do believe that one of the challenges of the people on the right today who have become less enamored with market outcomes than they once were is they seem to think there's a dial called less mark, how much market you have. It, it goes up to 11, of course, but uh, <laughs> you can turn it down smoothly and continuously. But of course, it doesn't work that way. Uh, you've got to intervene in a patchwork way that will inevitably be driven by cronyism. Um, it's just, uh, it's an appalling picture, but uh, there is a certain uh, aspect to your and my view of this, which is a little bit um, uh, utopian, which I don't know what the right word is, you'll tell me, which is that, you know, we do see a certain uh, a cliff coming, whether it's the cliff of debt, whether it's the cliff of uh, dysfunctional cities, whether it's the cliff of uh, an economic system that is that is so gridlocked by regulation, industrial policy, that it stops producing the, anything close to the 3%, but it's not here yet. So we're standing here uh, Cassandra-like, and um, people are kind of dismissive of it. Well, I'm very pro-Cassandra. Very, yeah, very useful figure. <laughs> uh, look, Washington is run by people who think that there's a 1% difference between 2% growth and 3% growth. 
I mean, it's sort of fundamental problem of, of numeracy. Things. That's one of the <laughs> deepest things ever said on this program. <laughs> Just to make it clear, 3% is 50% higher than Correct. 2. Um, but yeah, it's, it, other people think it's, it's a little higher. While, we have been, while three per, steady 3% growth has become a receding dream, Barack Obama was, I believe, the first president in American history to serve eight years and not have a single year of 3% growth. While it has become a receding dream, we have been increasing the enormous calls we've made on the future productivity of this country through the entitlement program's promises. We have no choice but to cultivate economic dynamism with all its frictions, understanding that creative destruction, as Schumpeter's term has it, is both creative but destructive with casualties. We have to understand that. But, again, we made the choice when we made the choice of Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, we have attached uh, the most rapidly growing in percentage terms portion of our population, the elderly, uh, to our most dynamic science, medicine, as an entitlement. Yeah. And uh, we have to live with this now. Uh, we can't take that back politically. Uh, intellectually, we can't solve this without rapid economic growth. Which is why protectionism, which is a recipe for sluggishness, protectionism, which is a, a, just a new form of industrial policy, which is government allocating wealth and opportunity, not as the market would, that is not efficiently, but politically, uh, why we are in for a downward spiral. And increasingly bitter politics of distributive arguments. So just a... Uh Brief aside, we're recording this in in uh, your office here in Washington, D.C. Uh, there are no notes in front of you of any kind. Um, you have an enormous number of facts, quotes, and anecdotes at your fingertips, but at your mental fingertips, not your literal fingertips. Uh, your book hit... I, Ever since I interviewed H.A. H. Jacobs, and he, he encouraged me to create a file called One Thing, which is a something you take away from a book or a lecture or a conversation, because you forget them. You, you think, oh, that's a great point, and then you it, it just drifts away. So I write them down now. I think I wrote down, well, let's just say I wrote down a lot more than one thing while reading your book. Great quotes. Um, oh, here's one we, we may not get to, so I'm just going to throw it out. Uh, where you stand often depends on where you sit. I'd never heard that before. Um, it's extremely apt. Uh, you told me that in your book that Grover Cleveland answered the doorbell at the White House to illustrate how informal the presidency was as recently as the end of the 19th century. How do you keep track of these? Do you have a technique? Do you have a system? No, not really. Do you just have a big brain? Well, I, I, I blame baseball. I mean, I grew up memorizing statistics and and uh, thinking about Jimmy Fox and and uh, Tris Speaker and this stuff. I mean, I shudder to think how many of my brain cells are devoted to, I have the th same to this. Issue. But yeah. anyway, I, uh, I, 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 it just sticks. Uh, <laughs> I, let me, I, let me I give just, you a few statistics back on our subject of medicine. Okay. In 1900, the American people spent more money on funerals, twice as much money on funerals as on health care. If we had had national income statistics back then, and Simon Kuznets was a while in our future, 
uh, which we didn't. If we'd had national income statistics, the health care sector would have been too small to take cognizance of. Today, of course, it's 18% of the economy. Our health care sector is larger than all but four nations' economies. In 1900, only 17% of deaths were of people over 65. Today, it's 75%. In 1900, 37% of all deaths were from infectious diseases. Today, it's 2%. Now, what we've done is we've changed medicine from conquering infectious diseases, which we've done, to managing chronic ailments. Longevity is a tremendous social achievement, the greatest achievement of the 20th century, helped along by the greatest device of the 20th century, which are antibiotics. But now here we are, and we've made these promises to ourselves with an aging population, as I say, attached to, by an entitlement to this dynamic science. An attachment that lets the elderly put their hands in the pockets of taxpayers without any uh, Precisely. The ama- one of the amazing it's- things about modern America is that we haven't had explicit generational conflict. It's coming. It is coming because the, the elderly are looting the futures of the rising generation. So that conflict isn't the one I'm most worried about. I, 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 the one I'm most worried about is um, the Wilsonians against the Madisonians, or maybe there's a third group in there because um, there's this new phenomenon in conservatism, or at least in the Republican Party, which is populism, nationalism, Trumpism, whatever you want to call it. Um, is there... You and I both lived through the 60s, which was a tumultuous era. A lot of people died. Right? There were bombings and political bombings, not just yeah. terrorism. There, were, there, were, there was a war of ideas that, that led to death, but not very many. Um, most of it was over the war in Vietnam, at least nominally. The war ended. It sort of settled down. I don't see a, um, a healthy future for the United States in the sense of a shared vision of what our country is. Your book is an attempt to provide that. It will appeal Deeply to a very small group. I respect them all. (laughs) (laughs) I would put myself in that group, the people who we haven't gotten to it yet, but your book's about the ideal of returning to the the Constitution and the ideals of the founders. It's a a quixotic mission I salute you for. Um, But is there any potential for a a shared vision of our country that that would lead to – a healthy future as opposed to, say, a civil war. What worries me is a shared vision that's destructive. Uh, we talk a lot about the discord in America today, and Lord knows it's real enough. But I am much more alarmed by a consensus, and it's as broad as the Republic, and it's as deep as the Grand Canyon. It is simply this. We should have a large, ever more generous welfare state and not pay for it. Everyone's Everyone's agreed on that. <laughs> Political class, which I believe is much more united by class interests than it is divided by ideology. The political class, from Elizabeth Warren on the left to Ted Cruz on the right, agrees that we should permanently run large deficits because it makes big government cheap. The public loves it. It gets a dollar's worth of government. It's charged 80 80 cents for it. Uh, 20 cents, a fifth of the cost of the government is fobbed off on the future generations, which are unconsenting because unborn, and we roll merrily along. We're about to run a trillion-dollar deficit at more than full employment. 
Yeah. I mean, with six million unfilled jobs in this country, never mind the people clamoring to get in at our southern border to fill the jobs. But, uh, I mean, this is astonishing. And this, again, we are on a trajectory for increased sluggishness economically, which will mean increased ferocity politically as we use political power to allocate wealth and opportunity, uh, which we used to assign to markets. Yeah, I'm sympathetic to that view, unfortunately. Um, worried about it also. Uh, I, you've already said it as much. I, I think your favorite founder is James Madison. You certainly would, I think, call him the most underrated founder. Yes. Um, you want to recommend a biography of, of Madison? Is there a good one? Uh, it's not a biography, but it's uh, it's an explanation of his thought. Uh, it's by Greg Weiner. It's a slender book published by the University of Kansas Press. It's called Madison's Metronome, and it's a superb look. Greg Weiner, everything he writes is excellent. Uh, he's amazingly prolific. He's just published a book on political prudence in Burke and Lincoln. He's produced a wonderful, slender book on uh, the political thought and significance of Daniel Patrick Moynihan. But uh, Madison's Metronome is the best. Have you seen Hamilton? I've not seen Hamilton, no. Is there a reason? No, I'm just too busy, didn't go to New York. They did annoy me for a while when uh, there was some shooting somewhere, so they did it without people holding muskets. And then Vice President Pence, for whom I have no political brief, but uh, was in the audience and they were rude to him. And I said, well, I don't want to go see these people for a while. I, I suppose I'll get around to seeing it. I mean, anyone who can make uh, stirring uh, theater out of the assumption of state debts by the federal government uh, is, uh, is is worth paying attention to. Well, it's quite it's quite an achievement in that it deals with something I struggle with, which is the sweet spot between entertainment and education. If you have too much education, people don't want to see it. If you have too much entertainment, they don't get anything out of it. Uh, and it is a creation that is both ed educational and entertaining. I just saw it for the second time, and it was um, it was clear to me in this production that I'd underappreciated Aaron Burr's role in the in the show because of who had played it when I'd seen it in the two shows. But it's really also clear that the hero of the show is America. The America that you're yeah. advocating for, the America of, of, of a, a vision of an unattainable vision of equality, of opportunity, of respect for the individual, of freedom for to, to, Find your own path, for whether you're an immigrant, whether you're native-born, uh, whether you're black, whether you're white. And that show just salutes that in a way that has never been saluted, certainly never been. I haven't seen 1776. Okay, it's never been saluted on no. Broadway, but it, 1776 was a small show. Here's the most successful show probably ever on Broadway. Well, Hamilton <laughs> himself, Hamilton the man was the archetype of the restless American individual. Yeah. When the Jeffersonians and the Hamiltonians had our first great political divide, our first great argument, they were arguing about economics and technical matters like Bank of the United States and all that, but they were arguing about what kind of people we should be. Jefferson said, 
And this is why he leapt at the chance to expand executive power and, and make the Louisiana Purchase. Jefferson said, we should have sturdy rural people, uh, rather like, oh, well, Thomas Jefferson. Huh. Alexander Hamilton said, no, 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 no. We should have restless, urban, churning, aspiring uh, individuals, rather like, well, come to think about it, Alexander Hamilton. Uh, Jefferson, where you stand depends often on where you sit. Yeah, Jefferson, <laughs> Jefferson won the American argument in the sense that he provided us with luminous vocabulary, great declaration of independence, all that stuff. We live in Hamilton's country. He won. And uh, aren't we glad, frankly? Yeah, that's true. Uh, slopping the hogs, not really my idea of fun. Um, I just want to read a, a quote. We, we've touched on some of this already, but it's such a nice uh, quote from the book. Uh, you write, quote, The case for limited government is grounded in the empirical evidence that human beings have something in common, human nature, but are nevertheless incorrigibly different in capacities and aspirations. From this it follows, not logically, but practically, the government cannot hope to provide happiness to all. Rather, the most it can reasonably expect to provide are the conditions under which happiness, as each defines it, can be pursued, as each is equipped by nature or nurture to do. And it's a beautiful quote. I, I agree with it. it. It's so out of fashion. Just- it, 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 it is, but the, the great episode in, America, in world political philosophy that began really with Machiavelli was to understand that the ancients approached political philosophy by saying, let's define the best and see how we can get there. Modernity said, there's no agreement on the best. Therefore, let's define the worst and see how we can avoid it. Madison's revolution in democratic theory was this. Before Madison, those, and they were few, who thought that democracy was possible and advisable, said it was only possible and advisable in a small face-to-face society you could walk across in a day. Athens. Pericles, Athens, Rousseau's Geneva. Because, supposedly, the enemy of democracy was factions, therefore you had to have a small, homogenized society. Madison said, no, no, here's our catechism. What is the worst outcome of politics? Tyranny. To what form of tyranny is democracy prey? Tyranny of the majority. Solution? Don't have majorities, meaning don't have stable, potentially tyrannical majorities. Have majorities that are ephemeral, constantly shifting coalitions of minorities, to which end, he said in Federalist 10, the first task of government is to protect the different and unequal capacities of acquiring property, because that will produce different factions. Mm-hmm. And we will be safe from the, with this saving multiplicity of factions. Hence, he said in Federalist 51, we need to have an extensive republic so that we can have more room to breathe, as it were, more, more of these factions. Yeah, um, but of course, as the Constitution has fallen away as a restrictor of uh, government intervention of various kinds, uh, the ability of factions to extract their pound of flesh has grown. And I see cronyism and and part of this is cultural the willingness of of politicians to to give into that it's not just the political incentives it's a cultural change i think in how politicians see their job yes a we've we've destigmatized dependency there's no 
shame at all and being increasingly dependent on government. And that's whether you're on food stamps or agricultural price support. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, further, furthermore, uh, you know, we're, we're about to have a, a roaring argument in the United States about socialism, which I find highly amusing. Yeah. It's going to be hilarious when the Republicans say, eek, there's a socialist in the room. When 67% of the federal budget is transfer payments, the sky over America is dark with checks going back and forth as we redistribute income. These Republicans defending us against socialism just reauthorized the Export-Import Bank, which exists to funnel capital to favored corporations. If that isn't socialism, tell me what is. Uh, we're crowding out defense spending by uh, the growth of the entitlement system. Uh, in 1960, 50-some percent of the federal budget was national defense. 50-some percent. Uh, and, and very little on, on sort of what we call human resources or whatever. That's completely changed, and it's going to be not difficult. It's going to be impossible to reverse. Let's go back to history for a minute, and I'm going to quote one of my uh, favorite quotes from the book, where a contemporary of Teddy Roosevelt called him quote, a steam engine in trousers, which is just, it's a great line. Teddy Roosevelt is not known at all except as a, quote, swashbuckler, uh, 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 exuberant fellow. Why is he important? First of all, he read... Who should I read to understand him better? Uh, you should read um, uh, Gene Yarborough. Uh, he's a very fine political philosopher at uh, Bowdoin University. Uh, on his political thought, uh, the biographies by uh, Mornings on Horseback by David McCullough, and the great thumping huge biography by uh, Edmund Morris. What made uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt so significant was that he he, he he was a sort of a child naturalist, and he read Darwin early, and he became a believer in social Darwinism of some sort or other. Life is struggle. Struggle will produce those who prevail, ought to prevail, survival of the fittest, et cetera, et cetera, among races, nations, et cetera. But when he became president, he had what he called the stewardship view of the presidency, which a president can do anything he's not explicitly forbidden to do. Now, this was the precursor of Roosevelt's theory of, of the presidency, but, but it, it, the, the embryo, the fetus, if you will, of the modern presidency was in uh, Teddy Roosevelt. His distant cousin, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, taking advantage of modern means of, of mass communication. Teddy, by the way, was the first person to become president who had been filmed by a movie camera. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, when he sat down to deliver shortly after his inauguration, the first inaugural address, I mean, his first fireside chat, began with two words that do not appear on the transcripts up at Hyde Park, but he said them anyway. He said, my friends, now. You say, well, what's wrong with that? After all, we do have presidents who feel our pain and presidents who are our national consolers. What's Well, Here's the point. Imagine George Washington addressing Americans as my friends. Unthinkable. That austere man knew he was not in the friendship business. 
Do we? Uh, to, one of the themes of my book is the grotesque inflation of the presidency at the expense of, and often with the collaboration of, Congress, which has marginalized itself by delegating to the executive branch powers it has no right to delegate. And to the administrative state. Precisely. And there are faint signs of hope that the Supreme Court and other courts might try to breathe life back into the non-delegation doctrine, which is to say there shall be judicial review of congressional delegations, some of which will be illegitimate. Because by delegations you mean ceding authority yes. and power to right. unelected folk who effectively make the rules. The first substantive words of the Constitution, which means the first words after the preamble, is all legislative powers shall be vested in a Congress of the United States. And there's no provision there for divesting them, <laughs> simply because it's convenient politically for for congressmen and women to say, I voted for uh, quality education. You guys over in the executive branch fill in the details in 700 or through 1,000 pages of yeah. regulations. So there's an irony there, and it struck me, that irony struck me as I was reading your book, which is you would think it would be a virtue to the empowerment of the executive because the executive, in principle, is the only, the president, is the only political actor who, in theory, acts for the goodwill of the nation as a whole. Congress is, by nature, geographically incentivized and so on. Uh, you'd think that would lead to more efficient, generally beneficial things in the world by empowering the executive. That's, that is the progressive theory in a nutshell. Uh, they went all the way back to Andrew Jackson, who was the first one to say, look, I'm the only one who's got a national mandate, so get out of the way. Yeah. Um, the problem is it assumes that... Uh, Presidents are elected by a somewhat homogenous country that uh, comes to a conclusion that this president represents the will, the general will, to, to use Rousseau's terminology here, which of course is sentimental, romantic, and utterly unreal understanding of how presidents acquire 270 electoral votes. And yet, I mean, the interesting, we talked a little bit about tariffs, you'd understand why um, a senator or a representative from Michigan would want tariffs in the old days, at least. Now it might be a senator from Tennessee uh, or Kentucky who's got a plant in his or her state. Biggest but, uh, BMW plant in the world is in South Carolina. Yeah, but why, why is the president the, ex, the, the proponent for those special interests in those local geographic areas. is Part of it is, I think, the ability to use the bully pulpit to sell the argument, which I think is false, that this is not just in the interest of these individuals, but actually is good for the country as a whole. Well, first is the perennial problem of the visible and the invisible. We can see the fact that there are jobs perhaps saved by... Uh, steel tariffs. We cannot see the far more numerous jobs lost downstream from the steel makers to in the businesses of the, of the steel users. So there's the seen and the unseen here. Uh, but beyond that, I mean, we we have today uh, protectionism is uh, wielded by someone who is uniquely. Uh, 
uh, unable to understand elementary facts. We have a president who really believes, believes that China is paying the tariffs. Yeah, no, I think that's, I'm not sure. I'd like to give him the benefit of the doubt, at least on paper. Um, Big mistake. He, he uh, today is, is August 14th. He did actually with, draw some of the uh, imposition of tariffs today because he was worried it would affect consumer prices for Christmas. So he, he's getting some information that, to the contrary that's encouraging, I think. Yeah, I mean, he, he's been very busy handing out, I guess by now, something like $30 billion to heal the wounds that he inflicted on farmers. Yeah. Uh, the soybean farmers in the Midwest, one in three rows of their soybeans used to go to China. Not going right now. And China is saying, all right, we're going to look to Brazil and Argentina and other places. And so the, the markets, when this trade war that he started and that he says is easy to win, when it finally comes to an end, as all wars do end, he's going to find that a number of these markets for a number of his important constituents, such as farmers, are gone forever. Yeah. You know, I, I had hoped that the um, Trump presidency would discourage some people from championing a power ex- powerful executive, but I, I was wrong. Um, the ability for people and the des- – I say more of the, the yearning to worship a political leader is so strong that – on the left, just as on the right, when Obama was in president, was the president and despised by the right, they said, "Well, we'll get our turn." Uh, they didn't say, "Let's defang." What's the right word? Def- That's a good word. Defang, defang the yeah. president's ability to use executive orders and and uh, discretion. And now we have the most. Um, I think despised. It's hard. It's a, there's a lot of competition, but the most despised Republican president of our lifetime. The left doesn't like Republican presidents. The right doesn't like you know Democratic presidents. I get that, but it doesn't seem to get them to realize that they shouldn't like any presidents. It just gets them to say, "Wait for my turn." Um, Kamala Harris, one of the Democratic candidates running for the nomination, Democratic nomination, has said the following: "If I'm elected." I will give Congress 100 days to pass satisfactory to me gun control regulations, and if they don't, I'll do it by executive order. Now, this is, again, the kind of watery Caesarism that uh, is the natural consequence of elephantitis of the presidency. And doesn't seem to be likely to change in the near future. Uh, It does raise the question, which is... Where do your ideas have a home? They used to have a home in a piece of the Republican Party. Uh, that piece is quiescent at best or gone at worst. Um, do you think there'll be a new political party in America? I don't do you think, think the Republican Party will some will, will just <clears throat> morph into something totally different now? There has been an amazing stability. Michael Barone, great student of American politics, writes about this brilliantly. Amazing stability in America. Uh, the uh, Democratic Party really emerged as a fighting force in the third decade of the 19th century, the Republican Party in the 1850s. And they, these two parties have organized our political argument ever since and are apt to continue so doing. Uh, the conservatism, as I understand it, 
and as I write about it in my book, is right now a persuasion without a party. Now, that's not the end of the world. Uh, what conservatives have to do is try and regain a foothold in the, uh, in the Republican Party when there's some space left in the party for dissent. Right now, the Republican Party is more homogenous than it has been in a century. The great fight began in 1912 when Teddy Roosevelt wanted back into the White House and he challenged his protege, William Howard Taft, who was the incumbent Republican president, and uh, reduced Taft to winning just two states, uh, Maine and Vermont. Uh, or, sorry, Utah. What, what, anyway, just two I knew states. That. I did. Yeah. I know I knew which the two were. I didn't want to say. <laughs> uh, the argument reemerged in um, the 40s between the uh, Taft and Dewey Republicans. And then there came the Goldwater and the Rockefeller Republicans. Today, there's no argument in the Republican Party, uh, partly because a large number of Republican officeholders have no ideas other than the fact that they'd rather like to be in office, and partly because they're afraid of, of the 45th president. But this will not always be the case. And we can say with confidence that the departures from the conservatism that I advocate have consequences, and they're unpleasant, and they are slower economic growth and bitter distributive politics, and people will grow weary of both, at which point people are going to pick up their copies of the conservative sensibility and say, ah, we made a wrong turn, and... Uh, and and, we're, and they will thumb through my book and everything will be right again. Margaret Thatcher, when she was elected uh, head of the Parliamentary Conservative Party, but before she became prime minister, was at a meeting of her members one day and someone was nattering on about the beauties of centrism and being free of philosophy and all that. And she got impatient, as was her wont, reached into her famously capacious handbag, pulled out a copy of Hayek's The Constitution of Liberty, slammed it on the table and said, this is what we believe. I live for the day when an American president picks up the conservative sensibility, slams it on the desk and says, this is what we believe. That Thatcher story could be apocryphal. I, it's true. I, 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 no, it's absolutely true. I, 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 Andrew Roberts, who knows these yes, things, who's, who's a recent says, talk guest, hasn't come out yet. So, but yeah, says it's true. Okay, it could be true. Um, the constitutional liberty—that's be impressive. Um, you sure not the road to serfdom? Uh, positive. It was, I the, wish con it, the, it, it was <laughs> the it was the it was the constitution of liberty. She would uh, she was uh, an early adherent of a think tank in Britain okay. called the uh, Institute of Economic Affairs. Ralph Harris, Arthur Seldon, all these guys. She knew her Hayek, and not just the road to serfdom. I'm impressed. Um, but I'm glad you mentioned Maggie Thatcher because uh, I've started pointing out, and I think it's true, that she would unembarrassedly make the case for liberty for its own sake. And I don't think there's a politician in America. Reagan did it too, of course. Um, but but she was strident about it. It's fun to read some of her old speeches and and stories about her because she just took it as a fact. 
that fact is um, is not at the front of people's minds in America anymore. It's, it, it used to be. It used to be that if you wanted to impinge on liberty, the burden of proof was on you. Now, for those of us who are in favor of liberty, the burden of proof is on us. And I don't think we have as much to say as we as I think we should. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And uh, let me phrase it slightly differently. You talked about the downside risk a little bit ago of tyranny. So one reason to be in favor of liberty for its own sake is so you don't have tyranny. That's a big one for me. It's way yeah. up there. It's the yeah. reason that that I'm a um, a defender of the Second Amendment and the right to own guns. You know what, what restrictions might be placed on that can be talked about, but but the right private ownership of guns I think is is extremely important as um, uh, just. I think it's important as a as a bulwark against tyranny. Now, some people say that that's naive. Of course, the tanks versus pistols, no, or even tanks against rifles, not going to help. But um, I don't know. I, I think it has some fact effect. But is it, what else can we say about liberty? I don't think we've done a good job making the case for it. Let, let me come at it uh, obliquely. Uh, some people say, "Why the title of your book, Conservative Sensibility?" It's on my list of questions. Okay, well, let me get to it right now. Uh, Sensibility to me is more than an attitude, but less than an agenda. It's a basic comfortableness with a world of flux and change. I'm a Lucretian. I believe in that change is the only constant. Now, some people like that and some people don't. And today, those who like uncertainty and change and the absence of control uh, are conservatives because that's what freedom looks like. Uh, Someone wise, I think it's Virginia Postrel, has said the lesson of the Bible reduced to one sentence is God created man and woman and promptly lost control of events. (laughs) The conservative sensibility says, great, we find that exhilarating, not frightening. A, a, a woman member of parliament not long ago giving her maiden speech in parliament said, democracy is like sex. If it isn't messy, you're not doing it right. And I would just change democracy to politics. That's the way politics is. That's the way life is. It's supposed to be messy. It's supposed to be a certain absence of control. One of the chapters in my book, of which I'm proudest, it's called conservatism without theism. Uh, I'm a, describe myself as an amiable, low-voltage atheist. I don't want to convert anybody. I'm married to a ferocious Presbyterian. Um, got no problem with religion. I just don't have any. Uh, and, and that's why I say I'm a Lucretian. I, I like the world of things. So I'm going to skip to... Um Hayek, because I don't want to miss um, miss this quote. Uh, this is what you say about Hayek. Hayek was enthusiastic about markets, but not because of utopian expectations. And I'm going to put a footnote here, which is that I, I hate it how anti-free market people like to pretend that free markets are perfect, and that's and since they're mm-hmm. not. We can, we can reject them. So I love that opening sentence. I'm going to reread it and then continue. Hayek was enthusiastic about markets, but not because of utopian expectations. He was enthusiastic because markets comport with what he called the tragic view of the human condition. 
Human beings are limited in what they can know about their situation, and governments composed of human beings are limited in their comprehension of society's complexities. The simple, indisputable truth is that everyone knows almost nothing about almost everything. Fortunately, yes, fortunately, this is getting more true by the day, the hour, the minute. As humanity's stock of knowledge grows, so too does the amount that theoretically can be known, that but that practically cannot be known. As Hayek wrote, the more men know, the smaller the share of all that knowledge becomes that any one mind can absorb. The more civilized we become, the more relatively ignorant must each individual be of the facts on which the working of civilization depends. What Hayek was recommending uh, urgently was epistemic humility. Epistemology is the field of philosophy that deals with how we know things are true and how we know things, period. And uh, Hayek said epistemic humility is plain prudence. Uh, The best way, I think, to appreciate this aspect of Hayek, well, there are two ways. One is to understand that markets are information-generating devices. That's what they do. They aggregate information. The Soviet Union, which had no markets, died of ignorance because it didn't know what things should cost. They, they managed to make shoes that were an example of value subtraction. The shoes were worth less than the materials and labor that went into them. Um, but another way to understand Hayek is to read Leonard Reed's famous little essay called I, Pencil. The theme of which is no one can make a pencil. Emphasis on one. No one person can make a pencil. Millions of people are involved in making a pencil. The graphite miners, the shippers, the lumberjacks who cut the trees down to make the wood, etc., etc. Millions of people involved literally in making a pencil. And they have to be coordinated. And yet there is no coordinator. And that's what markets do better... Um, than top-down control, which is uh, still somewhat honored in our country, which is uh, which is a good sign. Um, I want to know what your response is. I, I, I would describe you as a fan of the Enlightenment writ large. Uh, I'm sure there are parts of it you don't like. A lot of this book is, which we haven't talked about, is um, I would say is uh, shows a deep respect for John Locke. Uh, and others, and there's been an attack on that uh, from a number of, of corners, but one of the attacks says all the progress that we've made over the last few hundred years, sure, we've made material progress, but you know the fundamental nature of humanity has not changed. Human nature certainly has not changed, and in fact, some of the non-material parts of our lives have perhaps gotten worse. You know, we have a opioid epidemic, perhaps. I don't know if epidemic's the right word, but a tragic overuse, I won't say overuse, but tragic use of, of opioids. Uh, we have a rising suicide rate in the United States, it appears. Um, we have a lot of loneliness, as is, is, is it's claimed. How do you think we're doing overall? What's your take on that as a conservative and as a... We certainly do have a, an upsurge in what are accurately called the diseases of despair, suicide, substance abuse, etc. This is not the first time. Uh, at the turn of the 20th century, when we had a mass migration of people from small towns and farms into cities, they left 
social networks, arrived in cities, uh, were bereft of uh, mediating structures to give them uh, a sense of uh, companionship, and we had a consequent upsurge in alcoholism, which led to, among other things, prohibition. Uh, it is fair to say that there can be, not must be, but there can be costs of individualism. Uh, there can be a sense of deracinated individuals, uh, literally uprooted without roots in the community. But it's not necessarily so. And those who say that Americans are now bowling alone, that the, the mediating institutions of civil society have, have withered and died, are wildly exaggerating things. The American de Tocquevillian genius for spontaneous combustion of organizations at a local level is still there. Uh, so I don't despair of that. Furthermore, if... In a, in a regime of freedom, people use the freedom badly. That does not speak ill of freedom. It speaks ill of the individuals who have agency, who uh, can choose and can choose well or can choose ill. And the fact that a lot of people are choosing ill, uh, as I say, is not an indictment of an open society. It's an indictment of the people who are ill-equipped to uh, take advantage of the opportunities of an open society. Would you argue, I think, effectively in the book, that some of those communities and ties of civil society and family have been um, destroyed by government expansion? And I think that's an issue that doesn't get discussed much and certainly doesn't get discussed enough. Pat Moynihan used to say that with regard to welfare that the great cost isn't on those who pay for the welfare, but those who receive it. That by becoming wards of the state, by becoming comfortable with dependency, uh, welfare and the government, as the government becomes like an enormous tree in the shade of which smaller saplings and smaller plants cannot grow, uh, People find themselves without these nourishing institutions that wither as the government takes over functions that used to be done at, at local level. And they find standing there confronted with Leviathan and nothing in between to mediate their relationship with the state. That's a real problem. It's not as serious uh, yet as some people have said, but it's real and getting worse. And uh, it's a reason to think that uh, Leviathan should be pared back. You say um, Edna St. Vincent Millay was right about what to read, but wrong about what to think about it. And then you quote her, read history. So learn your place in time and go to sleep. All this was done before. You continue. Actually, one reason to read history is to know how little has generally been known about what was coming next, which is to say reading history is a cure for historicism. Nothing is as distinctively modern and as demoralizing as the sense that change is autonomous. Yeah, the great, great in sense of large, not in the sense of good, the great event of the 19th century was history becoming a proper noun. History with an uppercase H. History 
understood as a force with its own autonomous inward logic, uh, the unfolding of which uh, we have very little to do with. This uh, Marx got from Hegel, and Marx made it characteristically vulgar in a way that Hegel didn't. But Marx said, uh, we can... We can, those of us who are really clever, can understand the unfolding of history. And his disciple Lenin said, yeah, and we will create a political party that will be the vanguard of those who, uh, who understand the unfolding of history. And it shall wield, because it will deserve to wield, uh, dictatorial powers because it is on the side of history. How many times have we heard that phrase in recent years? Barack Obama was forever saying such and such is on the side of history. Uh, if you believe history has sides, you, you're in trouble right away. When you were talking about the Republican Party, or, or the, I should say, when you're talking about the two-party system, I wanted to respond with a um, insight of your book, which is related to what you just said, which is that nothing lasts, um, and so perhaps the two-party system won't last. But we're generally, um, you argue that that's a summary of of why one should be a conservative as a recognition of that. Why is that? What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that things will not preserve themselves, least of all, the fragile, subtle, rich complexities that make possible an open society. The rule of law, mass, uh, means of communication, respect for freedom of speech, all the rest. These are f rare, and it turns out, fragile flowers. And... Uh, Look, we live on a planet in which the tectonic plates are moving. I mean, nothing's settled yet. The continents drift. Why do we assume that, that anything else is fixed? So conservatives begin with, and indeed my book is, a summons to intelligent pessimism. Not fatalism. Fatalism says there's nothing we can do except uh, watch the passing, uh, working out of these autonomous vast impersonal forces. Pessimism means there's so many ways that things can go wrong in a free society. Uh, so be wary and take what Madison called auxiliary precautions to make sure that what we have uh, had bequeathed to us by wiser generations uh, aren't just frittered away by our generation. Yeah, I like to say the veneer of civilization is thin, and it's thinner than we realize, and it's fragile. Um, back to the founders for a sec, we're talking about this. You say that some people claim that an accident of history blessed the colonies with an extraordinary number of wise and decent men, and you don't think that's what's significant about the founding. Isn't that a true statement? Were not these, they were all men, as it turns out. Were they not extraordinary? They is were there extraordinary. Not a certain bit of fortune there that could have been very much otherwise? Had... Oh, look, that 55, those 55 people who gathered in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787. Was it only 55? Were, in my mind, it's were, more like a convention. It's, it's got the word convention in it. No, it's no, no, no. We're, we're, we're marvelous people. And we had a social system that got them to Philadelphia. 
if we were with 327 million people in this country today instead of 4 million in their day, if we tried to have a constitutional convention, if there were 55 people that competent in the country, which is unlikely, getting them to the convention would be impossible. Just our political system wouldn't churn them up that way. I remember you when mean, we, you're not I, talking about a transportation problem. You're talking no, about people no, no. who rise I'm, to the top. I'm talking about a process that yeah. would yeah. bring the cream to the surface. When we went into Iraq uh, and we're going to do nation building, I said the following: uh, Every team, baseball team, goes to spring training, and the managers have to say, "I'm just two players away from the World Series." Unfortunately, they're Ruth and Gehrig, and you could say of Iraq then. They were just about three or four people away from paradise. They needed a George Washington, the unifying figure of, of gigantic trust. They needed a Madison, a genius of constitutional architecture for allowing a fractious people to live together. They needed an Alexander Hamilton who could uh, understand the requirements of political economy. And they needed a John Marshall who could construe the constitution of such a republic. But I then said, you also needed the social soil of the United States, particularly in the mid-Atlantic region, in the third quarter of the fourth quarter of the uh, 18th century. That social soil was remarkable. And it's not to be found in Iraq. It's not to be found very many places. So by social soil, do you mean that there aren't four extraordinary people in Iraq or there isn't the ability of the Iraqi culture slash system to get there from here that would allow those four people to get a chance to implement a vision? I doubt that they're, those, that they're the equivalent of those four people in Iraq. I'm certain that the social soil does not produce a constituency for such people who would say, yes, we will accept your leadership. It does seem that after a nation is formed, though, that there is a romance about its founding. I know that because I go to Israel often and people will decry the fact that the current leaders are small compared to the greats of the founding of the state. We say that about America. Uh, is, is it simply that our political system produces small people in 2019? Well, there's a, de there's a de Tocquevillian problem here. De Tocqueville said that in a mass society, in, a, in an egalitarian society, there will be a, 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 a prejudice against distinction, and B, there will not be institutions that nourish distinction. So this is a problem of an egalitarian society. To nourish and welcome elites. Uh, the essence of populism is the dislike of elites, whereas the conservative knows that the question in a society is never whether elites shall rule, but which elites shall rule. And the, pro the question for democracy is how to get people to consent to worthy elites. Because definitionally, whoever runs a large society is an elite. The trouble is our elites nowadays are rather shabby. Last question. Uh, how is your political philosophy or perspective on America 
and politics changed over your lifetime, if at all? Oh, it's changed. I've, uh, this is my 50th year in Washington. I arrived in Washington on the first day of the first month of the first year of the 1970s, January 1st, 1970. And I have a, a diminished confidence in uh, the ability of the American people to think reasonably about politics, partly not because they are uh, unable to think clearly because they're busy doing other things and they can't possibly know all that government is doing. Government is doing 10 times more than it did when I came here 50 years ago. Uh, furthermore, uh, I, I've brushed up against public choice theory. So I, under the, the tutorship of... Uh, uh, James Buchanan and Gordon Tullock and others, I have uh, shed whatever romantic view of government I used to have, and I understand that uh, as people in the private sector try to maximize their wealth, people in the public sector try to maximize their power, uh, and that the national pastime is no longer baseball, it's rent-seeking. It is bending public power for private advantage either to confer an advantage on the faction or a disadvantage on the faction's competitors. So I have a, a, um, a, a sobered, unromantic view of what goes on in the city where I live. Now, I happen to love Washington because I love America. And Washington is full of glistening monuments to glistening achievements and great people. And um, it's... Uh, Still the best country ever, but the best thing that ever happened in the history of the human race happened on the 4th of July in 1776. So I'm not despairing about this, but uh, I have a, I, I call me a, a sobered, uh, sobered American. My guest today has been George Well. His book is The Conservative Sensibility, George. Thanks for being part of EconTalk. I enjoyed it. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.